0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we take you into a Nigerian kitchen with Chef Yawande Komalafe, we chat about the street food of Lagos, how a layer of flavors to create better tasting dishes, In Komalafe's dinner series, My Immigrant Food Is.
2: Part of the story of the dinners is that I'm cooking Nigerian food so far away from Nigeria, but like with ingredients that I can find where I am, because that, that I feel like is part of the immigrant story, the story of adaptation.
0: Also coming up, Adam Gopnik talks about regional specialties and their shortcomings, and we present a recipe for beef and tomatillo stew. But first, it's my interview with Gustavo Ariano. He went on a three-day journey from Las Cruces, New Mexico, to Denver, Colorado, to enjoy and also endure dozens of local recipes using chilies. Gustavo, welcome to Milk Street. Uh, chili has many definitions. You write it's a salsa that can be as thick as gravy or thin as water, mellow or scorching, a cheeseburger, a snack, a meat rub, a full meal, an appetizer. So the definition of chili was pretty broad, right?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because in the in the United States, when we think of chili, we think, of course, of a stew of uh, usually ground beef with beans, although Texans will always say uh, real chili doesn't have beans. You put some cheese, sour cream, uh, chili powder, and that's about it. And then sometimes we'll talk about chili peppers, maybe chili sauce. But along I-25, chili means something completely different. It's It, it means multiple things. So first and foremost, the question along the chili highway is always red or green green because there's two different types of chilies that everyone goes by, the red chili and the green chili. The red chili is going to be the older chili. The uh, green chili is from the chili peppers are grown along the way that are picked when they're unripe. And then from there, people put them into cheeseburgers. They put them into stews. They put them into pozole, which is a hominy stew. They put them with their eggs. They eat them raw. They grill them. They fry them. It's really remarkable. And it's also a food ways that's really only known in that style in the American Southwest, but especially along I-25.
0: Are all of these dishes good ideas?
3: <laughs> yeah, There are some ideas that maybe are not the best, it's especially in New Mexico. It's put on anything. You could buy green chili vodka, which is okay. You could get red chili fettuccine alfredo, which is actually pretty good. You get green chili brittle. You get green chili, oh, geez, what are some of the weirder ones? Lollipops and whatnot. So I would say try it. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't like it, well, at least you tried it and you could talk trash on it. When I was in
0: Oaxaca a while back, I really started to understand, more so than I ever had, that chilies are about flavor, not really heat as much. And you you make this point a lot.
3: When we're talking about chili along I-25, we're not talking about jalapenos or serranos or all the multiple types of chilies that you could grow or chilies from Mexico or anywhere else. We're specifically talking about a chili that's going to be when it grows to its full size, it's going to be as long as your hand and pretty thick. So it's the same type of chili, but it assumes different flavors depending on where it's grown. So people are going to swear by their types of chilies. And that's where you have big debates, especially between New Mexico and Colorado, where they fight over each other saying, oh, our chili is better. No, our chili is better. And the rest of the country doesn't really have a clue about it. But New Mexico wins because they have the bigger budget to promote their chili farmers (laughs) and their chilies than anyone else. As an outsider, you're like wait is it a chili a chili a chili so how could the terroir possibly or the flavor possibly change 100 miles away but it it does it really really does
0: uh the new mexican Sunday,
3: which actually i have to say sounded appealing could you just describe (laughs) what it is Oh my lord! Yeah, this is a place down in Las Cruces. There's a little chain called Caliches, and they sell a New Mexican Sunday. So it's it's New Mexican to the core. So it's gonna be uh, vanilla custard, uh, and inside of it they put pecans. Pecans are a huge industry in Southern New Mexico, but they also have candied green chili. Like little nubs of candied green chili. So you are going to get a little bit of heat, but again, it's all about the flavor. Heat opens up your palate. You get a little bit of the spice as a flavor. It is amazing. And especially if you're in southern New Mexico, it's going to be hot. So you (laughs) want to get that green chili one.
0: So Mexican cooking, I mean, you drove 600 miles. You must have seen lots of different local variations on a theme. A lot of them really different than the others
3: there's so many strata as you know you you mentioned Oaxaca so Oaxacan food is going to be completely different from the food from say Jalisco or, or which is more in the mountains or Veracruz which is on the coast yet they all go back to Mexican food so similarly you have southwestern cuisine southwestern cuisine is american cuisine but it's also mexican cuisine because the southwest has been right. was a part of Mexico far longer than it has been part of the United States so that influence is still there but that said because it is removed from the rest of Mexico, it's just going to be a different style of food. So New Mexican cuisine, it's simultaneously Southwestern, New Mexican, American, and Mexican. And, all, and even within New Mexico, the food in Las Cruces and the southern part of New Mexico is going to be completely different from the food up in Santa Fe or further north into Chimayo. And, but it all still ultimately belongs to the same family of Mexican food.
0: So kind of a personal question, but at the end of the three days, do you check in the hospital for a high colonic or something? (laughs) I mean, what do you, I mean, your digestive system must be on strike by the time you're done, right?
3: You know, what's funny. Anytime I eat chili now, my body just starts to like turn like, oh my God. I I basically, whatever the opposite of immunization is, that's what happened with me and chili, unfortunately. Um, Any last thoughts about Road trips. Uh, You know, (laughs) when I grew up, we did a lot of road trips
0: with my parents. And uh, I I really haven't done that lately. And that that, that seems like
3: something that should come back, right? Oh, road trips are a beautiful experience. I love just exploring and talking to people and learning about different cultures. I've been lucky that I have a career that requires that I be on the road as much as possible. So I've been able to eat across a lot of the United States, their regional styles and their regional foods. And so when people talk trash about different styles of food, I could say, hey, you're wrong. Go out and try it. I guarantee you, you're probably going to be very surprised and you're going to be better for it at the end. Gustavo, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Gracias for having me.
0: That was Gustavo Ariano. His article for Eater is entitled The Great American Chili Highway. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for my co-host Sarah I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, what's up?
4: Well, Chris, I have a question for you before we get started. Do you have any rules in your kitchen? Like when somebody else comes to cook with you that, you know, you just are sort of unmovable about. Like I'll give you an example. In my kitchen, I insist that when we're doing desserts, they use, I have a specific cutting board for, you know, slicing strawberries or whatever. Do you have any rules like that? Yeah, the
0: rule is don't cook with me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm serious. Because <laughs> you're too cranky? No, no. no. we really? had a, We had four people over for dinner on Saturday, and one of the couples wanted to come early and cook with me. And I said, look, don't take this the <laughs> wrong way, but when I cook, I do it all day, and I do it very slowly. I just love wasting time cooking on Saturday. I have my own system. I listen to something, some music, BBC radio, whatever. I love it. I do it at my own pace and have to socialize and organize the cooking with somebody else. I have... Just defeats the entire concept of cooking for me.
1: Well, okay, it's a solitary
0: then. now. Now serving and enjoying their company that's is a different I matter. have a great time, but the cooking for me is a solitary experience, and I just like to do the whole thing.
4: Well, good for you. And
0: I'll wash the dishes. I'll clean up. I'll do everything.
4: Geez, will you invite me over for dinner?
0: <laughs> yeah, you want to do anything?
4: No, I love it. That's a plan. But I guess first we should take a few calls.
0: And uh, on that note, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: This is Chris from Salt Lake City. How are you? Hi, Chris. I am fantastic. Hello, Sarah. Good to talk to both with you.
0: How can we help?
5: Well, I read an article on carbon steel pans being better than nonstick. And so I looked up the winner, which was Matfer Bourget. Bourget, yeah. Bourget, mm-hmm. okay. There's my French. <laughs> um the 12 inch as being the best of the carbon steels so it didn't say what size the surface area was so i measured the pans that i have and i've got a cast iron 10 inch an all clad fry pan 11 inch all clad saute pan at 12 inch and i thought well i'll just get a 9 inch so i ordered the 9 inch on amazon and when it arrived, I was really disappointed to find out that it was <laughs> like my crepe pan.
0: Yeah, it was like a kitty pan, right? It was too small.
5: Yeah, I wanted a nine-inch surface area. Aha! So, now, how does one go about finding out what the surface area if you don't have a pan right in front of you? Like that's an door? excellent
0: question because they measure the pans from lip to lip, and as you now know. A carbon steel pan has a particularly flared side to it, much more so than, let's say, a cast iron pan, which is pretty vertical. Straight up,
4: yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, A
0: carbon steel 9-inch is going to have a much smaller actual cooking surface than a cast iron 9-inch because they're measuring from lip to lip and the sides flare out. I don't know how to answer your question because unless it says something on the Amazon page or wherever you're buying it, you really have to go to a store to buy it and then... You know, it should bring, be like furniture ruler, when
4: know. they tell you every part of it.
0: Uh, and also, if you talk about a saute pan versus a skillet, those mean different things about whether the pan has right. a straight side or not. So the tendons you don't need, but the, you want a small pan for like two eggs.
4: Two eggs, and yeah. And then you need
0: a really large pan for everything yeah, else. But yeah, but I
4: think we've concluded that you really need to go to the store to buy it, which is, <laughs> oh my God, how old-fashioned. Well,
0: I believe in retail. So
4: I do, too. And
0: there's a lot of cookware stores. One of the things that's interesting is, you know, bookstores have come back now. I hope. Because they actually can help you. Yeah. And cookware stores now are starting to come back as well because they actually can help you make a decision, which you can't really do online easily. Right. Just like this one. Just to end on a positive note, which is that if you don't have a carbon steel pan, everybody should buy a carbon steel pan. If you know how to use it, it is really nonstick. It's great. And it's also heavy.
5: I wanted a a nonstick without getting all the
0: chemicals. Yeah, you know, I always ask the question after a year, there's a lot less coating on my nonstick pan, and I wonder where it went. Right. Um, One last thing I've discovered is I cook with a fair amount of oil now because the oil doesn't really get absorbed by the food. It heats the food evenly because without enough oil, you get places where it's oil and places where it's metal. And also it keeps the Mm -hmm. nonstick coating really well. Just make sure you use enough oil when you use the pan because that will help keep it nice. That's my speech for today, folks. Okay, Okay. Chris,
4: thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay.
0: Bye-bye. I just love it when people call about things I like. I'm passionate about carbon steel. I know you are. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Joan in Red Bank, New Jersey. I'm calling about bread. Okay. Um, Specifically, uh, Irish soda bread. So a few weeks ago, my local library held an Irish evening and an Irish soda bread contest. I dug out a recipe in my 30-year-old Sunset Bread book, and I made it according to the directions, but when it came out of the oven, it was smooth on top and an even golden brown. It was not peaked in the center or craggy and browned at the peaks like a lot of the other entries. So what could I do differently to get it to uh, that
4: nice rustic craggy effect? Do you feel like it didn't rise enough? Is that what you're
0: suggesting?
6: It didn't rise the way I had expected it to, kind of peaking in the center.
0: How did you uh, mix the dough?
6: I mixed the dry ingredients by hand because I don't right now have a mixer. I didn't use fresh buttermilk, but I have the buttermilk powder, so I mixed the buttermilk powder in with the dry ingredients and then added the water with the eggs, and it called for melted butter or margarine. Two eggs, one and three-quarters right. cups buttermilk, et cetera, a little sugar, baking powder, and baking soda.
0: And how did you mix the wet into the dry? With a spoon, basically. And was it shaggy when you had a ball of dough? No, it oh.
6: wasn't. It was really batter.
0: Ah, I know what the problem is. Those powder buttermilks, I think the recipe's one quarter dry powder to one cup of water, something like that. My guess is that's your problem. You had too much liquid in the recipe. Real buttermilk will be better. And I think however you converted the buttermilk recipe to the powder with the water, you ended up with too much water because it was, should be a fairly dry, craggy, sort of rough dough. It shouldn't really have that much liquid in it at all. It's pretty dry. Oh,
6: okay. Yeah. Now, this was definitely, this was sort of pourable
0: no, batter. No, that's the problem. I mean, it
6: wasn't problem. runny, but it was pourable, definitely.
0: So I think... If you make that recipe with real buttermilk, you'll be fine. Two other things. I would shape it into a round very gently with your hands. It should be maybe an inch and a half high, maybe a little bit higher, but not more than that. And then shape it into a round that'll fit into a 12-inch skillet, cast-iron skillet. And I bake my soda bread in a cast-iron skillet in the oven, and you get a nice bottom crust with that. That also
4: works well. I
6: actually did bake mine in my cast-iron skillet, and... uh... It had a nice bottom crust, but it didn't have
4: a nice top. <laughs> I- <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you had that one covered. Let me recommend you got that one right. Let me recommend finding a book by Darina Allen. She's a wonderful cook. She runs a cooking school in County Cork, and she has many cookbooks out, and I'm sure she has a really good recipe for Irish soda bread.
0: The last thing you is I make a whole wheat soda bread all the time, which has, mm-hmm. I think, half whole wheat flour, half white, and some wheat germ in it, a little honey. Okay. And that's... I think my favorite bread in the world. Really? Yeah, I, I would rather wow. have that than a rustic loaf. It's just actually, <laughs> yeah, it's in great toast the next day. Huh. Next time you make soda bread, try a whole wheat version. It's quite good.
6: I will. I sure will. And I think you really put your finger on it with the liquid because yeah. when you talked about patting it into the pan, there was no way I could have patted yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, no, you just
0: had too much water. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Easy fix.
4: All right, Joan.
0: Joan, thanks for calling.
4: Yes, take care. Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. To Brian or not to Brian? Well, if that's your question for this Thanksgiving, please give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
7: Hi, this is Joseph. I'm calling from Austin, Texas. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm calling to follow up. I had previously called about sweet potato fries, and I was having trouble with uh, baking them. Uh, you gave me lots of good advice <laughs> and uh, mixed positive results, I would say.
0: Okay, tell us what you did. Tell us about
7: the failure first. Yes, I first tried preheating the pan, yeah. uh, as you suggested, Chris, Uh-oh. and it ended up burning the sweet potatoes. However, you also suggested to use some potato starch, Right. and I did have some extra tapioca starch handy, yeah. and I decided to toss it with that it actually did help with the crispiness.
0: Nice. So I'm one for two. You preheated the pan for how long and how hot an oven?
7: For about 10 minutes on 425.
0: That's what I would have done. Okay,
4: what else? Tell us what else, yeah.
7: I then consulted my mother-in-law because she seems to be able to get them to come out a little bit crispier. And one of the things that I found was uh, using organic sweet potatoes was actually coming out soggier than non-organic sweet potatoes and I didn't understand why that was
0: I don't either. Are are, are they exactly the same type of sweet potato? Yeah, they're both the jewel sweet potatoes. Right, the jewel, the red ones. Hmm. I don't think that should have anything to do with the moisture content. This is probably all about the moisture content of the sweet potato. It may be the one was stored longer than another. I was going to say that. Yeah, and over time, converts to sugar. and. Maybe the supermarket yeah. one was stored longer. It may, it may be drier and more yeah. conversion to sugar and browns better.
4: Did you try cutting them a little thinner? Yes,
7: and my oven tends to run hot, so it would just burn them a little bit quicker. Okay. So, that the thicker that I cut them for my oven worked out a little bit better.
0: So I'm one for two, and Sarah's zero for one. Well, okay, <laughs> we, so we're one for three. <laughs> can...
4: So in the end, the solution was to use regular supermarket potatoes
0: and coat them with some yeah. sort of starch. Do you use a lot of oil on the bottom of the pan when you were roasting them, or no oil?
7: I usually use an olive oil spray on the bottom of the pan and then kind of spray on top of the fries as
0: well. As I remember when we did this at one time, I think we used not a spray, but, you know, a fair amount of oil on the bottom of the pan, so you almost were oven-frying them. I think when preheating, if you had a bunch of oil there and then put them on, instead of just a spray, you're actually almost frying them. That's one other thing I, I could go dig up the recipe, but I think that was something that we did test at some point. That might be worth it, but... At least the starch worked, which
7: is good.
4: So you're happier, yeah, but n- not happiest. Is is that true, <laughs>
7: Joseph? Well, I think the ultimate goal is to get them crispy, and I just don't think it's going to really happen with sweet potatoes in the oven.
0: It's not going to because they're they're yeah. so the moisture content so high.
7: Yeah, I think I'll have to resort to deep frying or something yeah. else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the French fry, the fried potato, is such a I've never made fabulous french fries at home ever. I think you need a fry Uh later. You need a big volume of very hot oil that stays at that temperature. Stays at
4: the same temperature, yeah. And
0: uh, when you get a really good french fry, you know, that's just spectacular. There's nothing better.
4: Right. Well, at any rate, I'm glad you're feeling slightly happier.
7: Yes. And to give you a point, Sarah, you were were also one for one because not flipping them was something you suggested and that definitely did help as oh, well. Oh, there you
4: go. Okay, there we go. Yay! Hey,
0: so we're even. <laughs> Thank you so All much. Right. Okay, All right. thanks for calling. Thank you. Take care. Right, Take care. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, I'm chatting with Yuande Komalafe about the cooking of Nigeria. That's coming up right after the break.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
5: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Most Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Yawande Komalafe. She's a chef, recipe developer, also a food stylist who grew up in Nigeria and now lives in Brooklyn. In a recent feature for the New York Times, Komalafe collected her 10 essential Nigerian recipes. She's also the creator of the dinner series, My Immigrant Food Is, which she runs out of her own kitchen. Ywande, welcome to Milk Street.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Let's talk about Lagos for a second. Could you just give us a, a walking tour? You know, what does it look like? What do you see on the street? Is there street food? Just give us a sense of the place.
2: It's, it's a bustling city. It's colorful. It's crowded. There's traffic. There's all kinds of smells coming from, like, the street food. There's suya on the street. There's puff puff.
0: And then suya is the, the suya's meat the, on grilled, this, the Yeah, the
2: skewered grilled beef um, or goat. Puff puff is the fried dough. Right. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much alive. It's very colorful and... Actually, I, I live in Brooklyn right now and live in New York, and that's one of the things that drew me to New York is because the, the city felt alive in the same way that Lagos does. If
0: if you and I cook together, what, what are some of the things I would learn from you?
2: I think the layering of flavors and spices is something that sticks out to me about Nigerian food. It could seem like a lot going on, but they all play very well together, and when it hits your palate, it doesn't overwhelm your palate. And I think that in itself is a very specific technique that you can add smoked fish and little dried crayfish, and you can add locust bean, all of which are really heavy flavors on their own, but you could add it to one dish and it doesn't overwhelm the dish in any way. They all just kind of play well together. So I think the 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 style in which the flavors are layered is a very specific thing.
0: Uh, you mentioned in that piece New York Times you had some essential recipes. You talk about the white bread. That was surprising to me. Because it sounded like kind of like Wonder Bread or something. I mean <laughs> it's it kind
2: of like Wonder Bread. So what's the story with that? I mean, um so Agege bread, the name to me is it's it's in itself a story. So the name comes from this huge bakery that existed in a very particular part of Lagos called Agege. And it was everywhere growing up it was you know it it would come to your house actually because people would hawk it on the streets and i remember it being just so tender and soft and it's it's kind of like wonder bread but it wasn't sliced and so to get it sliced was like a special thing and i think it's also really heavy because it it's used as a vehicle for a lot of our soups and stews and so that memory to me that like it's this big hunk of bread that's like really heavy just sticks out to me.
0: Your dinner series, My Immigrant Food Is, tell us about that.
2: So my dinner series is something that came out of um, my desire to explore my cuisine. I had always cooked in restaurants. I'd never really cooked Nigerian food. And so the dinners gave me an opportunity to cook and share Nigerian food and also tell the story of my immigration story, but also share the story of... um, other people who have immigrated to this country.
0: So what is your immigrant story? In other words, if you were to to summarize, which is impossible, the, the nature of that story, What what is that story?
2: A very condensed version is I, um, I. I feel like I've always been an immigrant. I was born in Berlin, moved back to Lagos with my parents and my family, moved to the U.S. at 16 to go to college, And I've been in the U.S. ever since. But also within that time, I lost my student status here and stayed on without paperwork. And so I lived here undocumented for about 10 years. And so in that time, I wasn't able to go back to Nigeria. And now I am. I got married and I've been able to go back to Nigeria. And so the dinner started out of a desire to be close to a place where I felt distanced from.
0: So give us an example of uh, a typical dinner from the series.
2: So a typical dinner would be actually the very first one started with a trip to Vermont, where there are some amazing goat farms in Vermont. And so, we, a,
0: you know, that's exactly the answer I expected. You, you, the first thing you'd do was go to Vermont to do a Nigerian dinner series. Exactly.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Don't you see it?
0: It's, I, I knew what you were going to say that.
2: And, and so, it started with a trip to Vermont, and we found an amazing butcher shop. They had goat leg, which I immediately decided that I needed two of them, drove back to Brooklyn. And so we had this goat leg and I was like, well, I just have to make Nigerian food. (laughs) And so part of the story of the dinners is that I'm cooking Nigerian food so far away from Nigeria, but like with ingredients that I can find where I am. Because that, that I feel like is part of the immigrant story, the story of adaptation. And so the dinners have a cocktail hour. You sign up online. So you don't really know who you're having dinner with, which I think is part of the charm. And there's a total of three seated courses and one standing course, which at the end of the night, it's dessert. And I figure people want to mingle and talk. And so part of the dinners is also having a conversation. I write down questions, exploring whatever topic that I, I feel that people would be interested in talking about. Um, and, yeah, so it's like a dinner and a conversation.
0: So, so you mentioned goat leg. And in one of the dishes you mentioned uh, in my research, you talk about braised goat leg. How do you braise a goat leg?
2: Hmm. How how
0: big is, I mean, this is a I mean, very a, a, young goat.
2: So a, a goat leg is probably about four to five pounds, I would say. And typically I would braise it in its own broth and with some aromatics, I put like a a pot of the goat leg with onions, tomatoes, pepper, um, and some broth and just let it go for about three hours in a little temp oven. While that's going, I make the abata, which is a base sauce of peppers, habanero, tomatoes.
0: And this is the sauce you you talked about as being sort of the central this, core yes. sauce.
2: It's similar to a sofrito. And so, so it cooks like in 20 minutes it, or half Yeah, an hour. it cooks in about 20 minutes. Okay. And so after the goat leg is braised, I put it in that sauce, add some of the broth and let it go again for another hour. So it's about a four hour process um, but once you're done the meat is falling off the bone it's completely tender it falls into the sauce you eat it over rice and you're happy.
0: So another thing you've you've done this is the New York Times is talk about your pantry uh, and'm I'm, I'm a really a huge fan of having the right pantry because that completely changes your cooking yes yeah. So what are the things you keep? the four or five things you keep that you think other people should have around.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, fermented locust beans is one. It's, it's really fragrant. I would liken it to fermented black beans. It's not sweet like miso, but it's got that same depth of flavor, and it completely changes the flavor profile, mm-hmm. but in an, an amazing way. So I think fermented locust bean is one. Um, chilies. I like spicy food, but I, I think also, you know, back to the technique in Nigerian cooking, I think there's a way that you can cook with chilies where it doesn't overwhelm. I think habanero chilies really, the oils really just have a, give a specific flavor to the food and a specific spice. Um, I would say ground cassava, it's called gari, also a fermented product, but fermentation to give a light, Tang.
0: Do, do you ever make the equivalent of a stock using the fermented beans or the cassava, it just like you would with huh. miso? Is that something you've ever done?
2: I haven't tried that, but that would be an interesting way to use it. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I don't see why it wouldn't work.
0: I just said that yeah. so I can say I gave you some <laughs> advice.
2: I'm putting that in my back <laughs> just, pocket. <laughs> I did, you didn't write that down. So the, the next but. recipe you see would be for a stock yeah. with, with locust bean. What else, um, what
0: else in your pantry?
2: Um, let's see what else stockfish, like a dried fish or a dried crayfish or a smoked mm. fish. Those are two different flavor profiles, but they also add a certain depth and umami to the to the dish. Um, and let's see the last product would be plantains. I like very sweet plantains, and to get it that way, they need to be ripened up until the point that they're almost all black on the mm. outside. Because when you fry them, they just give a lovely, crunchy caramel layer on the outside. And so, yeah, I think those would be the five products.
0: Are there any breads other than the Wonder Bread?
2: The Wonder Bread. <laughs> the Wonder bread. KK bread is the Wonder Bread of the Wonder Bread. <laughs> I uh, guess that's a relatable way to put it. Well... <laughs>
0: Uh, are there um, any flatbreads or any other kinds of breads? That... Flatbreads.
2: I haven't really seen flatbreads. If there are flatbreads, it's as a result of um, the Lebanese. Lebanese. Um, I don't know if I would call this a bread, but it's it's made from rice flour that's been a little fermented called masa. And it's a vehicle for meats and stews mm. and, and soups. And they're made in a little sort of like a cast iron skillet with deep holes in it, like deep pockets in it. Mm-hmm. And... That would be, it's, it's not quite a bread, but it's bread-like, it's spongy, it's, it's a little sour from the fermentation. Some places
0: in the world have, uh, cooking is a philosophy, it's not just about the food, right? So it's about context, it's, it's what the food means to you in your life. I assume that in Lagos, when you grew up, there was a context for the food, right? It wasn't just the food. What was that context?
2: Food is a part of every ceremony in in Nigeria. You know, when you have a baby, there are very specific ingredients that are brought to the ceremony that names the baby. When you are getting married, there are very specific ingredients, like kola nut, like... Um, yams and, you know, ingredients have meanings. And I, I really think that this is so in every culture that food is not just about the eating, you know. To me, while I was being here, food is memory to me. So, you know, seeing a bowl of jollof rice is a memory to me um, of like my grandmother making it. And so food can have very different meanings, I think, and it did in in Lagos.
0: Ywande, thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure. You you actually came here to the the studio. I get to interview you in person. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: This has been great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Chef Ywande Komalafe. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, beef and tomatillo stew. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, Mexican food is not Taco Bell. We've known that for a long time. Uh, It's not even many of the traditional recipes that we know now. It's really been changing a lot. And probably the one chef in Mexico City who's doing the most to change the definition of Mexican cooking is Enrique Olvera. He has a couple restaurants in New York, including Cosme. Traditional ingredients, many traditional ideas, but he makes them a little bit fresh and new. We spoke to him, and one of the dishes we were interested in was something more traditional, a beef and tomatillo stew.
11: So it's not surprising that he uses tomatillos in some of his more traditional recipes. The tomatillo has been around since pre-Columbian era Mexico. It's a small green fruit wrapped in a papery husk, very citrusy, kind of looks like a tomato, but the flavor profile is much more tart. It really lends itself to a stew here because we've got those rich flavors from beef combined with the brighter flavors of the tomatillo.
0: And it's often used in lots of salsas mixed with chilies or other peppers, put in a blender, and then finished in a skillet. So it's a common ingredient.
11: Absolutely. So traditionally, this is made with a bone-in piece of beef, and it's cooked all day long. Enrique sort of streamlined it for us already a little bit by using boneless beef chuck. However, he cooks the beef and the onions and the potatoes in three different pans, and we knew you would definitely not go for that. So we wanted to try to get everything in one pot, uh, which we were able to do by sort of layering everything. And the flavor profile was just the same.
0: So what's the basic method?
11: So it's like a typical stew, a Milk Street style stew. So no pre-browning of the beef. The beef gets tossed together with onion, garlic, chopped jalapeno, and some spices. That goes in the oven in a Dutch oven for about two hours. We take it out and we add in some Yukon gold potatoes that are cubed and the tomatillos. And we add those later on because we don't want those potatoes to break down. And we want to keep the flavor of the tomatillos really nice and bright. If you choose to prep the potatoes ahead of time, just make sure to submerge them in some cold water so that they don't discolor.
0: So you add the potatoes, the tomatillos, goes back in the oven for how long?
11: One more hour until the potatoes are tender and the beef is tender. And then when it's finished, you can top it with pumpkin seeds, cilantro, some sliced jalapeno. You can keep the leftovers, make tacos from it, serve it with some white rice. It's a great meal to have one night, like a Sunday supper, and then use the leftovers during the week for a weeknight meal.
0: You know, I'm so tired of my plain old New England stew, which I've been making for many years. This sounds actually a lot more interesting.
11: This is not your New England stew. (laughs)
0: You're not in New England anymore. (laughs) Lynn, thank you so much.
11: You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for beef and tomatillo stew at 177milkstreet.com.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik tells us about how his recent trip to Italy spawned an epiphany. We'll be right back Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front-row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi terrain select. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
1: Hold up.
0: This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will tackle a few more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Hi,
10: this is Amy from Lemon Grove, California. How can we help you today? I have a question about pasta making. Yep. I'm all excited. I got a pasta making attachment. And the recipes that I find are for all-purpose flour. I call my Sicilian mother-in-law. And she uses all purpose flour. Her brother says, no, no, you gotta get semolina, only use semolina. So, what do you recommend?
0: I use all purpose because that's what I have. I've used semolina. It's coarser, it's yellower, it's got a fairly high protein content. You know, all purpose is 10 to 11 or 10 to 12, semolina is 12 to 13. It's very good if you wanna keep the shape of a pasta, like, you know, a macaroni or something extruded. But all-purpose is just fine. The other thing you see sometimes is, you know, double-zero flour, and that just refers to the fineness of the grind. It doesn't refer to the protein content.
4: I would use all-purpose too just because I happen to have it on hand. I don't make pasta all that often. But if I got semolina, I would probably keep the flour in the freezer so it would stay fresh the other thing about semolina is it's got a rougher texture so it's good for trapping sauce you know when you toss the sauce with the pasta Mm. you know certainly if you're going to make a lot of pasta you might as well go the semolina route
10: it was just interesting that my Sicilian mother-in-law you know just used all purpose and I was wondering maybe that it was an availability thing because if I started looking for semolina it wasn't as readily available as I thought it would be
0: no it's not Also, semolina is a little harder to work with for me. You also also may need to use a little more liquid with it, too. So it's a little different.
4: But I think you should do whatever you want. And it sounds like you want to do semolina. So I say go for it. Yeah, I just, I want it. It's an extruding
10: device. It makes Bucatini, which is my absolute Uh, favorite. Well, then uh, then
0: semolina is probably a good choice for that because it'll hold its shape better. Yes. There's a YouTube channel called, I think, Pasta Grannies, and it's... Going to Italy, of course, and watching these the nonna, you know, make pasta. And you realize that there is no recipe, A. And B, it's a lifetime of experience. I mean, you ever watched one of these people make orchiette or something? It's just this one right. motion where they cut a piece off from the log. They shape it, form it. You know, it takes half like, a second. Yeah. And you knew it took 30 years to get to the point where they could do that. <laughs> right. You know? So the recipe is right. helpful up to a point, but it's obviously all feel and experience. Yeah
4: any rate, Amy, thanks
10: thank for you.
0: calling.
4: Okay,
12: well, thank you for taking my call. Okay, bye-bye. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
12: This is Pam from Missoula.
0: How can we help you?
12: Well, I have a question about spices. I typically like to buy a little more than I know I'm going to use and then put them in the freezer. And then take them out of the freezer as I need them. But I've been um, in a debate just recently with my partner, and he says putting them in the freezer ruins them. So I wanted to know, is it okay to put them in the freezer, or should I just buy a little bit at a time?
0: I don't know if it ruins them. You might get some moisture, you know, as they come out. Uh I think it's just, you know, I don't want to have to look in two places for my spices and everything else that goes in the freezer. I would just, as a rule, buy what you need for six to eight months— It'll store fine, just keep it in a cool, you know, dark place. But I assume it's in a not in a glass jar. It's in a sealed jar of some kind that's metal, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then you're good to go. And I think this whole rule about spices, six months, I've said this before, but I've had really good spices that were fine two years later. I think it just depends. And the other thing you can do is buy whole spices and then grind them or toast them at the last minute. And that's the best way to get really fresh spices. So... Instead of ground cumin or ground coriander, buy whole, toast them in a skillet for a couple minutes, then grind them up in a spice grinder or coffee grinder, and you'll end up with really great stuff. So that would be my suggestion is six months at a time and try to buy whole spices as much as you can and then grind them to order.
4: I agree with everything Chris said, but I have a question. There must be a reason that you thought to begin with you should start freezing them. What was that?
12: It's just that I would go to the store, you know, and you can buy them in bulk you know, i fill up a little bag. Honestly, I didn't realize how much I was buying. Right. And so I'd get home, and I'd put some in my little container. And then I'd think, well, I don't want this stuff to just sit out and go bail, I guess. And so I thought putting it in the freezer would help. Have you found it to change in its
4: quality, or do you still feel like it's perfectly fine?
12: I feel like it's fine, I
4: guess, to be honest.
0: Ground spices or whole spices?
12: They're ground,
4: one of the ways you can tell if your spice is over the hill is by its color. Um So, you know, paprika mm-hmm. that's sort of brown is not so flavorful. Likewise, cayenne. Or
0: you could open the top and smell it. That, too. That, <laughs> really too. It's a little when hard it's when
4: it's frozen, though, is what I'm saying. Oh, that's, that's a good point. But I, said, I wouldn't buy spices in bulk, you know, because sometimes when they're stored like that, they're not going to be that fresh to begin with. Ah. I wouldn't
0: buy... This is horrible, but try not to buy spices in the supermarket. I mean, spending money on really good spices for, you know, what, $40 a year, whatever the number is. Get really good spices because that's the easiest way to completely transform your cooking. And in small amounts. Yeah, small amounts. Buy the whole spice as much as possible and get the best quality. There's just a world of difference between fresh coriander or cumin or whatever and the lousy stuff. It's worth it. It's a tiny amount of money
12: yeah. All right. Well, okay. I have a coffee grinder, the small one that I no longer use, and I have used it for spices. So I'll just get yeah. it out and use it again. Yeah,
4: good idea, and clean it out in between with pieces of bread. That's how you clean it out.
0: Or rice, whatever.
4: Oh, okay. Or rice.
12: Yes. Thank okay.
4: You. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Thanks, Pam. Bye bye. Yep. Bye bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some words of wisdom from one of our own listeners.
5: Hi, this is Debbie from Littleton, Colorado. And I have a tip related to a listener question from uh, several weeks ago about the best way to zest citrus. My advice, my tip is don't zest citrus at all. Instead, buy the essential ingredient that gives the zest its flavor, which is citrus oil. This is not fake. It's not an extract. It's the actual oil that's contained in citrus skin. It's extremely strong. You use it by the drop, and it lasts forever in your fridge. I always buy Voyage Yen. You want the culinary type, not the aromatherapy type. And no more dried-up, zested citrus sitting in your fridge. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's time to hear from regular contributor Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am well, Chris. How are you? Uh, What flight of fancy will we be um, (laughs) taking this
9: week? Well, I have been thinking about the nature of the regional specialty. And I'll tell you why I've been thinking about that, Christopher, because one reason I may be in a particularly good mood today is I am just back from Italy. I love Italy, as I'm sure you do, too. And I love Italian food, as I'm sure you do, too, as who does not? But what I was struck by is something that produced in me what I am going to propose to you as Gopnik's law of the regional specialty. That, and this <laughs> is a very radical proposition, that they vary in quality in proportion to one's distance from the region. Now, you may ask, why am I saying this? It's because I went to Rome and had one of the three great Roman pasta dishes, and that is uh, amatriciana, spaghetti right. amatriciana. It's... Uh, Bacon and onions and a little hot pepper and tomatoes, and it's great. Maybe along with roast chicken, my go-to dish for family and for my own satisfaction. And then I went on to Bologna, and there I had, of course, spaghetti or a chitara, in that case, bolognese, right? Another another great dish. Um, The ragu made from pork and beef and veal and a little tomato and beef stock. And here's what struck me, to be honest with you, Christopher, is that both the Amatriciana I was eating in Rome and the Bolognese I was eating in Bologna were far inferior to versions of those dishes that I have had in London and New York and San Francisco and even, if I dare say it, have made here at home myself. And these were not, um, you know, uh, second-rate tourist restaurants.
0: Adam, I'm just warning you. You're going to have to take down your Facebook page and change <laughs> your name because you're in really deep trouble at this point.
9: <laughs> I'm. I. I always like to walk out blindfolded to the edge of the of the roof and then jump off. Now, I am not saying that there were not great food to be had at these restaurants. There was wonderful food, and I could detail the fresh noodles with white truffle and the osso buco and so on. But the particular signature dishes <laughs> of the towns that they came from were not as good, frankly, as ones I have had here, often at New York restaurants. I've been struck by a kind of a brilliant little hack to take the onions and the bacon and sauté them till they're really crispy and reserve a considerable portion of of the onions and pancetta, and it in at the very end, so you get a much broader palette of flavors, um, soft and crispy, sweet and uh, hot, and it just was better. And the same thing was true about the Bolognese. The Bolognese in Bologna is disappointing, uh, and I don't know a harsher thing you could say. Now, obviously, when I say this, Christopher, it is not to put down the genius of Italian cookery, uh, it's really just to propose a kind of perverse principle of evolutionary design in cooking. It's It seems to me that because there's no competitive pressure on these dishes in their native places to alter, they remain locked in place while all around them superior versions are being made. In other words, there's no pressure on spaghetti bolognese in Bologna to compete with all the other pasta dishes. It is the thing itself. It's the height of it. I'm thinking of things like bouillabaisse in Marseille. I've never had a great bouillabaisse in Marseille. I'm thinking about things like, even, to take another perverse extreme, American Thanksgiving dinner. The best American Thanksgiving dinner I've ever had was prepared by an Italian chef in London. Now, why would that be? It's because the Londoners and Italians who were coming to eat it would not be satisfied, as you and I would be, by simply having our expectations fulfilled, saying, oh, that's what Thanksgiving dinner tastes like, slightly tasteless turkey, the slightly paste-like gravy, the too-sweet cranberry sauce, and so on. No, it had to be elaborated. It had to be accented. There had to be more spices and more flavor in that dish to make it palatable. I think the same thing is true very often about the prime regional specialty of a place.
0: Well, I, I would add something though, which is: first of all, you can get a lot of lousy pasta in Rome. Yes. So it, this may be true for larger cities, but home cooking or smaller restaurants in smaller towns maybe are don't
9: fall prey to this problem. That could be, but you would think that if you went to what was suggested to you by Italians That's as the best and most typical cucina of the town, and you ordered the signature dish of the town, you would expect it to be outstanding. And as you just said, it's very often less than outstanding. Not that all the food wasn't very good, just those dishes tend not to be as good. And I think that tends to be a rule. Okay. But my second theory is this. People in Rome, when they want
0: to have a matriciana or arrabbiata, whatever, they are there to enjoy their life and have a glass or two of wine and go out and just have a good time at dinner. Like if they have pizza in Naples, They're just going to enjoy the pizza. They're not going to go through a process of rating it on a scale of 1 to 10. Maybe the perfection of the food is no longer the point in a place where they live with it daily. How about that?
9: We're saying the same thing, and I think in slightly different words, that there's no competitive pressure on it to be better because it is what it is, and that's what people come for, for it to be what it is. And I think that that's true, and I think as a consequence, you get this funny, perverse effect where, as you just said, the pasta you eat in Rome— is less satisfying than the pasta you might find elsewhere.
0: So, your advice, thank you, Adam, is please go to Rome, but not necessarily to eat the classic pasta dishes.
9: (laughs) Go to a region, order the things that are the regional oddities, not the regional specialties, and I would bet you will eat better.
0: I think that's an excellent point. Adam,
9: thank you so much. Pleasure to talk.
0: That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our public television show or browse our online store and order our latest cookbook. It's called The Milk Street Cookbook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street or on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week. And thanks, of course, for listening.
11: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzebaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.